1: And welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Dr Julianne Popple. On this edition we'll feature Digging for Cicadas, Glowworms and Life on Mars. But first up, Therese Chen and I are going to discuss science news. Mm
2: An international study comprising of more than 100 institutions has led to the discovery of a single gene which has a measurable effect on intelligence. Published in Nature Genetics, the collaboration was initially formed with the intention of mapping the gene which affects the ability to resist mental illnesses, as well as determine the factors that lead to tissue atrophy and brain size reduction. After taking DNA samples and brain scans of more than 20,000 individuals, they found that people with a small variation of the gene HMGA2, where instead of a T base, they had a double C base in their DNA, possessed larger brains as well as a higher IQ score. These increases, however, are relatively small. The increase in overall brain volume is 0.58%, and the increase in IQ score was 1.23, or 2.6 for individuals who had inherited the variation from both parents, which has led to numerous scientists to conclude that more likely, intelligence can be attributed by expression of multiple genes, as earlier studies have suggested. It's important that they found this gene, but it took a sample of 20,000 people to find it, precisely before, because the effect is so small, says Robert Plomin at the Institute of Psychiatry in London. If it's this hard to find an effect of just 1%, what you're really showing is that the cup is 99% empty, he says. Moreover, study leader Paul Thompson is also quick to remind others the importance of the environment. If people wanted to change their genetic destiny, they could either increase their exercise or improve their diet and education, he says. Most other ways we know of improving brain function more than outweigh this gene. The team also discovered that a variant of the gene, known as TSC was found to alter the size of the hippocampus, the area of the brain responsible for memory storage, by 1.2% above or below the average. A potentially significant finding for research of related diseases including Alzheimer's and depression.
1: Previously on Diffusion we've discussed developments in the realm of cybernetics, the augmentation of biological beings with mechanical and electronic parts. We've seen scientists make steps towards making cybernetic insect spies and the lives of the vision impaired improved through bionic eyes. The latest development in this field is no less strange, but is an exciting step forward. Scientists at Northwestern University have constructed a device that connects the brain to paralyzed muscle tissue, allowing the tissue to once again be moved by thought processes. This research has been carried out on rhesus monkeys. These monkeys were trained to carry out a simple task of grabbing a ball, lifting it, and then dropping it into a tube. The signals from their brains to their hands and arms during these activities were recorded via an electrode implanted painlessly into their brains. This allowed the researchers to see which neurons were activated in the brain and what kind of signals caused the limbs to move. They were then able to develop a multi-electrode array able to pick up signals from the relevant neurons decipher them and send them to the muscles. To test whether this would work monkeys with the implanted device were given anesthetic to block nerve activity at the elbow causing temporary paralysis of the monkey's hand. The signals generated by the device did successfully trigger the contraction of muscles and allowed the monkeys to pick up the balls with almost as much skill as before they were given the anesthetic. Although the movement facilitated by the device was not perfect, with further development this technology could ultimately help patients who have suffered spinal cord injuries to regain the use of their limbs. Have you ever wondered about life on Mars? Recent evidence has re-sparked the debate about whether or not there really is or has been life on Mars. Therese Chen reports.
2: The probe mission to Mars in 1976 may have been more fruitful than previously thought, with a re-analysis of old data suggesting that the mission may have found evidence of life after all. The initial label release experiment involved the administration of a nutrient substrate to the Mars soil sample. The sample was then monitored for the evolution of carbon-14 molecules as evidence of metabolism. Despite initial positive readings, subsequent testing failed to generate the same result, leading to a general consensus that the findings were geological, as opposed to biological. In contrast, for the more recent study, Neuropharmacologist Joseph Miller and mathematician Giorgiano Biacciati of Italy's University of Siena used a technique called cluster analysis and worked under the premise that biological processes are relatively more complex than geological. They found that there was a correlation between the complexity of the probe data to those of terrestrial biological data states. It turned out that all the biological experiments from Earth sorted with the active experiments from Viking and all the non-biological data series sorted with the control experiments, Miller said. It was an extremely clear-cut phenomenon. These findings are in agreement with one of his prior studies which suggests the existence of a circadian rhythm. A cycle of physiological processes observable on Earth in plants, animals, as well as bacteria and fungi. On Mars, instead of a 24-hour clock, on Mars, instead of a 24-hour cycle, there would exist a 24.7-hour cycle. He found that the radiation measurements from the Viking LR experiment was consistent with this. If you look closely, you could see that the radioactive gas measurement was going up during the day and coming down during the night the oscillations had a period of 24.66 hours Jessica on the nose he said that is basically a circadian rhythm and we think circadian rhythms are a good signal for life miller concedes that his results will not convince everyone that there is life on mars however he is hopeful that the next planned mission to mars known as curiosity will generate findings which will further support his research.
1: So that's pretty exciting. So there's evidence, yeah. potential evidence of life on Mars. But one thing I was curious about, you mentioned a first study which indicated trace chemicals. Is that mm-hmm. right? Uh, that indicating potential life? Well, basically, it...
2: the, um, the first experiment was one which basically looked for evidence of metabolism. So I guess they just re- re- looked at the data and used, a more an- and used another approach to the analysis.
1: So metabolism of something like bacteria, for yes, example, okay. pretty much. But then there was a second study that contradicted mm-hmm. those results.
2: Well, it wasn't. I I guess it wasn't so much a contradiction, so much that they failed to. They a repetition of the experiment couldn't find the generate the same results. So
1: less confidence mm-hmm. in the first results.
2: So that second study was done by a, a different team. From my recollection, I think it was the same team, and they just repeated. Oh, okay. It yeah but either way, it's pretty exciting, although the only other way is just to wait and and see if they, whether or not they're planning any more missions with this with this purpose so you may
1: have already covered this, but I just wanted to check the the latest results.
2: How are they different from the previous results? Is it a different test um entirely I don't believe so. It's just another analysis of the data that mm-hmm. they kept. So
1: perhaps even more replication is needed before we're really certain about whether there has been or is life yes. on Mars. Mm-hmm. How exciting. Yep. Wait to see. That was Therese Chen and myself discussing the possibility of life on Mars. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now it's time for our very new segment, Creature Features. I'd like to take you on a journey into the heart of the rainforest. It's night time. You're in a cave and you see some pretty little lights glowing in the ceiling. It looks like the starry night sky. But these aren't stars. And they're not fireflies either. They are in fact glowworm larvae with their brightly glowing bottoms. That's right, the light really does shine out of their bottoms. But there's a sinister reason behind their glowing behinds. For these lights serve to attract and lure unsuspecting prey to their webs. Small flies look up at the night sky or what they think is the night sky that they would normally use to navigate with. Instead as they move closer and closer to that pretty blue light that looks so alluring they get closer and they find themselves entrapped In a tangled web of sticky hanging threads with long drops of mucus. The snare of a glowworm is basically a hammock in which the glowworm lies on its back and hangs down long fishing line threads with big globules of mucus. It actually looks a little bit like a Christmas tree decoration, but it's a deadly place to be if you're a small, small fly. Once caught in the web, the fly will struggle. The glowworm, sensing the vibration, will pick up the fly and eat it for its meal. Not a bad life to live if you're a glowworm lying on your back in your hammock with your food coming to you. These bizarre worms are completely transparent and grow to up to only a few centimetres long. Their glowing bottoms are actually formed by their kidneys, which have been fashioned into a special light-producing organ. But surprisingly little is known about the way that these animals produce light. We know that they produce light using the protein luciferin and the enzyme luciferase, but we don't know the mechanism yet for how they actually control their light output. What we do know about these strange creatures is that they can live for several months or even longer than a year in this larval state. When they pupate, just like a butterfly, they'll spend several days as a pupa, completely still as they make the transformation from larvae to flying adult. When they emerge, these tiny little mosquito-like flies will fly out and attempt to find another one to mate with. But they have to be quick. Females only live for a couple of days and males only live as long as a week. And they're not the strongest of flies, so they have to be lucky this unusual group of insects is endemic to Australia and New Zealand and over in New Zealand it's a big tourism industry with thousands of tourists coming to see the Waitomo Caves and their glowworms every year. Whilst these glowworms might be a frightening prospect for their small fly and arthropod prey, to us they remain a beautiful addition to the nighttime landscape of the caves and rainforests of Australia and New Zealand. Join me next time for another Creature Features. For more information and fun facts about glowworms, be sure to check out www2 srcom shows diffusion where I'll be posting up some fun facts, photos and possibly videos for your further entertainment and education. Next up, I talk to Dr. Lindsay Popple, an entomologist from Brisbane, Queensland, about digging for cicada nymphs in the name of science. Some people will do amazing and bizarre things in the name of love. Others will do it in the name of their country. But nothing, nothing compares to what some will do in the name of science. Science. Dr Popple, I wanted to start by asking you, what's the strangest thing you've done in your research and why?
3: strangest thing I've ever done in the name of science, according to any sane member of the public, would be to go out into a park and start digging holes with a fence post digger. <laughs> and,
1: and why were you digging holes with a fence post digger?
3: I was actually trying to find cicardinims underground.
1: I thought, you know, cicadas were these winged creatures flying through the air, and you're telling me there's some underground? How does that work?
3: Well, a lot of people will be familiar with the shells that they find on trees. These rather alien like life forms are the, uh, are the window into the larval form of the cicada. And that strange body shape that they have is associated with their adaptations for life underground.
1: So they're little digging machines.
3: That's right. They're built for digging tunnels and backfilling tunnels and backflipping and doing somersaults and all sorts of things underground in order to escape the uh, unusual aspects of underground life, like uh, getting flooded out of their holes and uh, having to move between different tree roots, um, because they feed on tree roots, uh, with these straw-like mouthparts that they have. Uh, so that's their entire existence underground. They need to be mobile in that environment to survive.
1: How much do we know about what they do
3: underground? Very little. And until we get a hold of some pretty expensive equipment, it's going to be quite uh, hard to to penetrate deeper into knowledge of that system.
1: So, I imagine it would be actually pretty hard to find these nymphs underground. How did you go?
3: Uh, I dug a lot of holes and uh, counted some hazards along the way as well. Like, well, there was one time I dug, already dug quite a few holes, so I was pretty tired. I was using this. Fence post digger, which is about 25 centimeters wide hole, uh, creating metal implement with these great big blades along the side of it. And you just grasp the handles with each hand and, and turn it in a clockswise direction. And I'd got down to about 40 centimeters and pulled quite a bit of earth out already and I got to this point was about to, you know, prepare myself mentally to spin this thing around again and it suddenly just spun around really freely. It's like a really loose piece of dirt. And I thought, that's a bit strange. And I sort of leant down and went to move it again. It was really quite soft and I could hear this strange rustling noise in the ground. I thought, that's very odd. And I sort of leant forward and then... Pretty soon after, stood back a bit. There's this massive wolf spider just clambered out of the hole and uh, went came towards me. So, I, I think uh, I recall abandoning that particular hole pretty soon thereafter.
1: I can imagine one would. So, did you ever um did any did you ever encounter anyone while you were digging holes? Did anyone ask any questions?
3: Yeah, you get the whole uh, "What are you doing here?" digging up these holes in uh, my garden and stuff. You know and, you explain it and people get pretty interested in finding out, you know, why you're digging up these cicada when, you know, every summer there are hundreds of them crawling over their trees and they find them everywhere and yet, you know, I'm willing to sweat for hours trying to actually unearth things to find out what they're doing and, you know, of course the hazard is while you're doing this, half the time when you're digging them up, you may only dig up half of one so that's not very helpful. <laughs> yes.
1: But t- were you, were you trying to sample living? specimens or just to find out where they were?
3: I mostly try to find out where they were, but also wanted to get a hold of a few living ones so I could sort of stick them in that dirt terrarium and find out what they do. Just watch how they work because, you know, once you get them out of the ground, they kind of look hopeless. You know, they just sort of mumble around and you think, this has got to be the most useless life form on the planet. It can't <laughs> even move properly. And yet, you know, as soon as you go, all right, here you go, have an environment that looks like the one that you came out of and you sort of leave them alone for a few minutes, suddenly they're down there and spinning around and moving around like like anything that would be in its perfect environment. So you can see the way they work. So and you there's...
1: were able to make some observations of some live ones that you sampled?
3: Yeah, only uh, only a couple of them that wanted to perform for me, basically. <laughs>
1: Even though you weren't able to make all the observations that you wanted, I understand that you you did quite well recording the songs of adult cicadas. Why were you interested in listening to adult cicada songs?
3: Because listening listening to the song is a window into the the mating system of the cicada, and the calling songs themselves are regarded to be species-specific, so they have a particular... Pattern and pitch that is characteristic of the species. and The reason for that is that the males produce this song in order to attract the females and the female needs to be able to recognise the song of a potential mate.
1: So the females are able to recognise the males?
3: That's right. Yeah, so the reason why I wanted to look at at the songs and work out species limits in some groups where you've basically got these cicadas that produce different songs but they look the same. Okay, so
1: you've got some species that look the same but have a different song?
3: That's right. So we're trying to understand the functional aspects of songs in terms of how we define the species and and what difference does it make when one male produces a different song to another one in terms of assortative mating and how gene pools work. It's another kind of tool that we can use for differentiating different species and that's something that's quite powerful and it's quite hard to grasp in other organisms.
1: I never would have imagined that one could use the song of an animal to differentiate it from another one quite in that way. So it's the male that does the singing in cicadas right? That's right. Is there any kind of response from the females?
3: So across the smaller types of cicadas or the ones that have a thinner build which make up The majority of the cicadas out there, they're mostly small and conspicuous and have soft calls. There, There's a more complicated interaction. The male produces this song and the female hears that song and she's attracted to it. So she'll fly into the general vicinity of the male. And you'll hear in the songs of these smaller cicadas that they've sort of got this pulsing element. They've got this repeated motif that just keeps going on and on. And in between those repeated phrases, you get a bit of a silent gap, and that silent gap serves a purpose in that it allows provides a cue uh, for the female to respond. So it's in, during that silent gap the female gives a quick flick of the wings, which produces one sharp tick sound. So you get these these repeated units and the sharp tick sound quickly following them in the form of a kind of a duet between the male and the female, and it is that very short non-specific response of the female that allows the male to actually track down the female while he's still singing. So it's actually in the end, the male that finds the female. But the specificity of the song is not in the female response, it's in the context of the female response within the pattern of the male's call.
1: Well, I'll certainly be listening uh, more closely to the cicada songs in the coming summer. Thank you very much, Dr. Povell. My pleasure. That was Dr. Lindsay Popple talking about cicada nymphs and digging holes in the name of science.
0: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science you may go on field trips. You discover the marvellous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.
1: And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2 That's diffusion at 2 And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on the radio and you live in Sydney... We need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website at www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Therese Chen. Diffusion has been produced by myself in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Dr. Julianne Popple. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science-wandering next time on Diffusion Science Radio.
0: It's a scientific fact.
2: A scientific fact.
0: It has to be correct.
2: It has to be exact.
0: Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon. It's been proven to be true, like one and one are two. It's checked and double-checked, a fact that can be backed, because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that there are belts of radiation in outer space, which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome. It's a scientific fact.
2: A scientific
0: fact. It has to be correct.
2: It has to be exact.
0: Because it is, because it is a scientific even scientific facts are not perfectly exact, but they are as exact as it is humanly possible to make them at the time. Because it is a
1: scientific fact.